business person. I wasn't a brand, I wasn't a mogul, I wasn't an entrepreneur. I didn't know anything about anything. I've learned that I'm good at the concept, not the contract, but it wasn't like I had this big, you know, foreshadowing about being the first person to monetize a liquor brand in that way, to create a category and a space, to change the game for everyone, including the Kardashians, everyone on reality television. You know, I didn't think of any of that. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. Before we hop into the show, I would love to hear from you on how the conversations on Imposters have impacted your life. How does it help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have most stood out to you? And also tell me the stuff that you haven't liked that you would like for us to get better with moving forward. Shoot me an email to alex at morningbrew.com with your thoughts, and I promise I'll get back to you as soon as possible. My guest today is Bethany Frankel. Bethany is a self-made business person, TV producer, multiple New York Times bestselling author, philanthropist, and mother. You were probably introduced to Bethany when she was a cast member of The Real Housewives of New York, where she revolutionized what it meant to be a reality show member. We'll get into more of that in this episode, but beyond her on-camera life, she's just released her first business-minded book, Business is Personal, which kind of encapsulates what this podcast is all about in three words. The book is full of anecdotes, personal stories, and advice on how to succeed as an entrepreneur. There's insights from Bethany's conversations with Hillary Clinton and Mark Cuban, as well as an in-depth look into her own business deals with Skinny Girl Cocktails. We'll get into more of that on this episode too, but if there's one thing to know about Bethany, it's that her success is all about making an impression, hustling to make the connection, and working hard to scale and market your business. The full conversation with me and Bethany right after this break. Bethany Frankel, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you. I want to start in the beginning because I feel like as I read your book, Business is Personal, the way that you've navigated your career as an entrepreneur and a business person feels like it it was so informed by your formative years in childhood. And I, I would love for you to talk about what your childhood was like. Uh, my childhood was very adventurous and filled with uncertainty and instability. I went to probably, I think I went to 13 schools and I had a father and a stepfather and a mother and an aunt and an uncle and a family all embedded in the thoroughbred horse racing world, which is about highs and lows, having and not having, gambling, action, odds, racetracks all over the country, a little bit of Vegas, just, you know, a lot of degenerates. So I had a very crazy childhood, but, you know, it was fun in many ways because it was a lot, there was a lot of action. I mean, I just, my personality is a reflection of that journey. Like, I don't take any of this shit seriously whatsoever. And I don't like pomp and circumstance. And I just 
I like winning on my own terms, in my own way. And, you know, nobody cares about who comes in second in the Kentucky Derby. And I've just seen it all on the racetrack. So it's just a very non-traditional childhood. And I've had a non-traditional path to success. So I want to talk more about this and I'm going to keep pulling it out of you because I just think it's so fascinating. Something that you mentioned in the book is that you you start realizing as you spend time with other kids and with their families that you didn't necessarily have the emotional support, right? You talked about like these two things, the financial support and then the emotional support. What does that mean? Did that mean as a kid when things went wrong or not even as a kid, but as you grew up, as things went wrong, you did not feel like you had your family to lean on? Well, I mean, I didn't see my real father, I think from the time that I was four or five to the time that I was 14. And I had a stepfather who was like sort of in and out, but consistent for a certain period of time. So there were a lot of people in and out. And then my mother went away, let's just say for a while and wasn't in my life at a later period. So I just always had different people coming in and out of my life. With the exception of my real father, I didn't feel any love from him. But my stepfather and my mother, I, I, I think I felt at different points loved but supported is different. Supported is you are 17 years old and you have a terrible fever and you have to figure out on your own with a friend's mother how to get yourself to the hospital and deal with that. Or, you know, as a kid calling the police because there were things going on in my house that were like domestic violence things or going to nightclubs at 13 years old with an ID and, you know, some emphasis and direction and, and maturity to be there. So I just kind of was an adult long before most people are adults in this society. You know, maybe not in Romeo and Juliet times, but in in this current society, most people, it's hard for people to understand the way that I grew up, but it just was what it was. I mean, it sounds like you just had to grow up really freaking fast. Yeah, I did have to grow up really freaking fast, but it served me well as an adult and I don't feel... I now realize in putting the pieces together why I am the way I am, but it wasn't like as a kid. I mean, listen, I did hide and it wasn't that fun to hear like people being beaten up in my house, but it wasn't like terror and torture. It just, it just, it was, but it didn't feel like that. I mean, whatever's normal for you is normal, but it, I didn't feel terrorized as a child. I just later can't believe what I, you know, what I saw as a kid compared to what my daughter sees as a kid and how we all coddle these kids. Bethany's early life was complicated. Imagine growing up and moving around constantly, not having consistent role models to look up to, witnessing abuse in your household, and always being around higher competitive circles where gambling and action was always the topic of conversation. For any child, these experiences can play a really significant role in who you become. And for Bethany, it forged a personality through fire and she owes her quick wit, sharp and direct communication style to these, let's call it intense childhood experiences. It's something she holds in high regard and the key to a lot of her business success, but she's self-aware about how it makes her come off. It's it's just the, it's the action, it's the let's go, it's the figure it out, it's the like pros play hurt, it's the, like stop whining, just get it done. It's just the whole thing. It's not like a, th it's not one thing to pinpoint. It's just who I am as a person. So it may not always be so touchy feely and it probably is perceived as cold or abrasive. And I am, I don't really let anybody in. I let in so few people. So the people that I really care about, I'm very touchy feely, weepy like that. But with most people, I'm not, I'm pretty hardcore. 
So I think that comes from the racetrack. And my father was very much like that. He really didn't care what anyone thought, and he was unfiltered, and it's, you know, he just didn't mince words. It's very interesting. Also, out of curiosity, you, you referred to the book. Did you write this book like the other books on your phone? I did write this book on my phone. Yeah. It, that is that is insane. That is like serial killer status, I mean, writing a whole I, book on your phone. I think it's so funny that everyone finds it interesting <laughs> because I don't have, I, this is not my computer. I don't know what this computer is I'm sitting in front of. It's something that my assistant has. I'm sure I paid for it, but I don't have a computer and I don't have an iPad. So I was the BlackBerry generation. I mean, I thought the BlackBerry was the greatest thing ever. Oh, it, and it I was. Mean, I miss it. Brick breaker on the BlackBerry. I can't was the even best. talk about. It. I just, I, I, I want them to come back. I just, <laughs> it, please come back. But yeah, oh my God, you should see the way I text. It's like a firing so I Just, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I'm the fastest. I could probably win some sort of a contest, but I just don't understand how anyone doesn't. You know, I don't hole up in a cabin and write a book. I just basically, this is this. Oh my God, this is this anecdotal story, and then I piece it together. I do everything quickly and efficiently without much fluff. <laughs> uh, I can tell. Um, so a few of the the words you use to describe kind of the way you operate is intensity. Mm. Uh, it is focused. It is about winning. It is about business. Like you talked about how there's only a few people in your life that you've tr you truly let in. Mm -hmm. And that may be a function of just kind of your surrounds growing up. Have you, have you reflected all upon like, some of the ways where that can actually be a challenge for you. And what I mean by that is like, it's very evident that how you operate and the intensity with which you operate serves you incredibly well from a professional perspective. There's evidence yeah. of that. <laughs> where does that actually fuck with you in some ways? Like, where is that actually not helpful? I mean, I won't necessarily know what I have lost as a result of it. Cause I, I don't, you can't be who you're not which yep. is something that Kathy Griffin of all people said to me years ago. Yeah, I don't have a I don't have a big bedside manner. Like with my daughter I do and it's the nurturing and the babies and my dog and love and you know Paul and my fiance but I'm not big on the small talk and the pleasantries and the bedside manner. Okay, let's talk about your early days of your career. You're in your 30s, you're in a significant amount of credit card debt. Talk about that time in your life when you're still figuring shit out. I believe it's when you were working at the place that invented the chopped salad. Like just pull us into that part of your life and what that was like for you. Well, not only did I create the first ever low calorie ready to drink cocktail and really invigorate the ready to drink space, my DNA is solidified in the history of the chopped salad. So I feel that that is a mark that I've made on history and it cannot be taken huge away. Mark. I, I was a host uh, at La Honestly, Scala. I was going to say, to be honest, Skinny Girl is huge. I actually think a bigger contribution to this planet is the chopped I mean, salad. It, you know what I mean? It absolutely, it it's a chopped yeah. fucking salad. It's like sliced <laughs> bread. It's chopping a salad. People love it. I don't. I think it's watered down lettuce. It's for another day. But yeah, I was happy making my $8 an hour. Um, but I was happy I did that. I had a Ford probe. I worked for... Uh, Linda and Jerry Bruckheimer in their house. I worked for Kathy Hilton and Nikki in Paris. I worked at Lauren Michaels' production company. I worked for Mark Berg, who ended up doing the Saw movies and working with Charlie Sheen on Two and a Half Men. I mean, I found my way through. I just always had a good job. And then I ended up producing massive, large-scale events and taking to it, like being really good at it. And the first event I got was Alcatraz to produce the Alcatraz worldwide movie premiere on Alcatraz. Think about the logistics of that. A million dollars back then, that was 25 years ago, 
the the budget, the barging, and I just I just did it, just like relief work. Well, how did you how did you get that job? Like for like I know you named a few jobs there, but like you were making eight dollars an hour, making salads, and then mooching off of getting salads as an employee. But how did you get to that point where you even had the opportunity to produce? I don't know how, I, an I, don't know how I found out about it because I definitely didn't have like a headhunter or something, or maybe I was looking up ads or someone told me about it. But I got the I interviewed, and like me, like if you go in and you give good interview and you're on it and you're ready to go. You, you succeed. It's the craziest thing. A resume is literally like paper towels. I just, I, I always had it. I, 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 I sat people at La Scala. They still remember me now. Like the people that I see, the writers in LA, like they remember me the way I was as a hostess because everything is your business because business is personal because I, you know, that's the one thing about finding staff. People, you go all the motherfucking way, man. Whatever it is, yeah. I always did. Yeah, and it's interesting because the waitressing job at, wait, were you a, a waitress or a, sh- you're a but hostess? I was a okay. cocktail waitress at M80 in Boston. And I'm now okay. partners with that same person in a wine. That's awesome. 5,000 years later because of who I was at that Full job. Circle. That's the point though. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, But when you were a hostess at La Scala, like at least from reading the book, what it reminds me of is, you know, my favorite job growing up was being a caddy, was being a mm-hmm. caddy at the concert yep. club because there is no better job, honestly, f- making just a lot of cash, but also because the network of human beings that play golf at a country club was incredible. And I think that's one of the things that you mentioned in the book, right, is the network of people that would come into La Scala Beyond. and even your f- future jobs was incredible. But also the level for self-esteem, like, they needed me to get what they wanted to get done. And being a caddy, those people who were in a totally different class structure than me, I was making $8 an hour my forward pro, but they needed to engage with me because in order to sit down. So for you, it's the same sort of thing. Like you're going to make their experience. What's a relationship or two that you remember making at La Scala that actually turned into another opportunity? Um, Kyle Richards from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I saw her and I think I had heard about her. I don't know how I knew who she was, but because she wasn't, you know, on TV really regularly then. But I dated someone who dated her and I found a Lancome $20 makeup remover in his cabinet. And I thought to myself, who would ever spend $20 on makeup remover? You just go to the drugstore, which is funny because I now do like drugstore beauty reviews. So I, I thought, so I walked up to her at La Scala when she came in and said, are you Kyle? And she said, yeah. And I said, is it, did you buy Lancome makeup remover for $20? And she laughed that I would ask her that question and we became friendly. And she told me her sister, Kathy Hilton, needed a job. So I was always networking and hustling to answer. Yeah. You know, these things don't just happen. And it happened five yeah, more yeah, times yeah. there too. That's just two examples. Totally. And it's like, you didn't have a, a particular agenda of like, oh, this person is going to do this thing for me. It's more just smart business and like being a human being to meet people. Okay, I want to talk about uh, Skinny Girl for a second. The interesting thing about Skinny Girl is like, I think what people don't realize is that, I mean, you were an entrepreneurial person and you had a number of businesses that did not work out prior to Skinny Girl. And then even while you're doing Skinny Girl, like there were points in the business where it seemed like you thought the business was going to die. Yeah. So just talk for a second about kind of like a few failed business experiences or a failed business experience prior to Skinny Girl and like how you just kept shit moving. Well, Bethany Bakes is a wheat, egg and dairy free cookie company, low-fat cookie business, so ahead of its time because 
there were no natural food chefs then when I was a natural food chef. Yep. Like we're talking plant-based 30, 20 years ago. So that was ahead of its time, but I also didn't have the infrastructure or the right packaging partner, went through multiple bakeries, couldn't get the consistency, baked through hours throughout the night with my $500 Bronco that I would then take the, I mean, it was, it, I just, I had to fold it. What's a Bronco? A car, Bronco. I bought a $500. Oh, oh, the car. A, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I didn't actually have like an animal Bronco. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah it wasn't yeah, true if you were no, riding a horse right? That yeah. would have been a good business model, actually. I probably would have done well. Yeah. Um, so I had to just, I, I was putting good money after bad and I just, I couldn't get ahead of it. And you got to just know when to hold them and when to fold them. But how, as you dealt with this stuff, right? Like, again, you're a person who's focused on winning. How did you mentally reconcile that at the time? I don't consider winning like hitting a home run every time you get up to the plate. I consider winning like, how do you handle it and how do you survive and how do you thrive? And I always turn a loss into a win. So the first time after a week of sequestering to get on The Apprentice and the last day, everybody's out of that hotel except for 16 people. I think I've made it. And they tell me, you didn't make it. And then getting knocked down, still being broke, connecting with that same casting director, keeping the relationship, then going on The Martha Stewart Apprentice. You know, I, I, I consider the fact that those losses are case law for my $100 million business now. I, I don't, I just don't think of the small picture as the wins or the losses. Like I've played the fame game and I've won. Like, you know what I mean? Right now, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Like I'm, yeah, yeah. you know, I've won, I played the fame game and I've won. So like, that's the win. I, I, I played the Pashmina game, I didn't win, but that was like a small step along the way. Like net net walking out of the casino right now, I'm a winner. Yeah, right you're, you're thinking about winning as like this, like this directional mentality, more as like this yeah, one thing. This if whole it didn't work thing out, is a win. Yeah. And by the way, I could press my bets ten different ways now, make a big massive mistake, and go out of the casino a loser. Right now, I'm up, and I've made decisions yeah. in the past year to make it that I will always be safe. So, but we can totally. never know what's going to happen. You know, as I always say, anything can happen in a courtroom. But. That's that's the win. I'm I can say I have succeeded. So check the box. For someone as hellbent on succeeding as Bethany is, she is able to appreciate the long-term view. Sure, the the short-term losses sting, but we should never be afraid of making a mistake because the knowledge gained from a mistake can actually feed into this long-term success. Moving deeper into Bethany's career, I was curious where Real Housewives of New York fit into all of this. How did she use that platform to elevate her brand and career from someone who was hawking plant-based cookies in the Hamptons to a nationally recognized brand? More on that after the break. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Before the break, we got a window into Bethany's professional demeanor, which is direct and persistent, and to her own admission, sometimes cold and invulnerable. But I wanted to understand how Bethany took that attitude and her slew of startup failures from the past and ended up with skinny girl cocktails. 
The story starts with Bethany running into a Real Housewives of New York casting director. I was at Polo, the sport in the Hamptons. Like it's, uh, who would know that there were horses there because it's just a place to schmooze. And I was trying to hawk those cookies, the Bethany Bakes cookies. And I ran into uh, a woman who was excited about the show and was had brought casting directors to Polo because Bravo said they were shutting down the show. They weren't going to go forward with it. The production company was happy with the four women they had. Bravo said they need a fifth woman. So it wasn't a proven show. They didn't have to do it. It was a show called Manhattan Moms. So now this one woman was very invested in it working, so she wanted to find someone. So this is this vortex I was unaware of that I walked into, and it could have been anybody. They just were like, let's pick her, which makes no sense because they were looking for a mom and someone wealthy. I was broke. I wasn't a mom. I wasn't even in a, a great relationship. So... I was like, you know, the motliest choice. And I didn't even, I wasn't interested in it. And back then you didn't have actresses on reality TV. This was like a thing. You just want, you were on once. It was supposed to be real. You're a person on show. You're not a famous person, which I wasn't. But so a month went by and the producer and I spoke and I I just said, you know, it's not that easy to get on television. If it doesn't do well, no one will know. Um, But I had no idea what it was going to be. In fact, I went in with an agent to pitch a cooking show to Bravo, because they hadn't, I hadn't committed to the Housewives. And the person in the room was like, wait a second, aren't you shooting this other show with us? I'm like, yeah, but I haven't signed. It literally set the precedent for them. And so you end up working on Real Housewives and just talk for a second about, you know, obviously what's now become known as like the Bethany Clause about showing products on the show. If you show those products, they end up, you know, the the show uh, ends up having ownership in the product that you're promoting. Like, talk about that for a second and why it was really important for you to not have that be part of the it contract. It wasn't that it was so important. It was like a gut instinct. I always have a thing that, like, is a principal thing that I'm not going to fold on because it's just like you got to... You can't bluff and you can't do an ultimatum, but there are just some things where you know it'll bother you later and your dignity and the whole thing. And I don't know. I wasn't a business person. I wasn't a brand. I wasn't a mogul. I wasn't an entrepreneur. I didn't know anything about anything. I've learned that I'm good at the concept, not the contract. So... I don't even know what the hell the contract said, but the concept of you're gonna give them part, I'm already taking whatever the shitty money is, like, just give me the shitty money, but at least whatever I do is fair and square for me. But it wasn't like I had this big, you know, foreshadowing about being the first person to monetize a liquor brand in that way, to create a category and a space to change the game for everyone, including the Kardashians, everyone on reality television, You know, I didn't think of any of that. It was just like one little step. Like, I don't want to sign this thing. I'll take the shitty money, but that's that's where the line is. But I mean, they didn't, I don't remember them pushing back so much. What are these little morons going to come up with? I created that concept, so there was no way that they could force, think of that either. Yeah, that that makes sense. We had talked about kind of the, you know, a few of the businesses where you experienced challenge prior to Skinny Girl. Talk about the kind of the hardest experiences you had with Skinny Girl, like when you were genuinely worried about the business. I didn't have anything before it. Who would think you could create your own liquor brand like back then? Like it was, so it wasn't really, I don't even know what I thought. I didn't even know, I didn't know what I didn't know. It was just so fresh and being like a virgin in business and I just pushed it through many things, meaning it was all upside. I couldn't believe we were even successful. But the problem was once I knew how much people wanted it, and then we had problems with glass in China, and then we didn't manufacture enough ahead of the brand because my partner didn't want to spend that kind of money ahead of the brand, that was me going crazy because proof of concept had already happened. The, the thing, everyone wanted it. And it wasn't like Prada bags where they're, you know, 
$2,000 and you can't get one and you wait. Like, it's freaking right. $13 alcohol. Like, you can't go in a store and go on a VIP list waiting for, like, they want the goddamn alcohol. So I was just crazed. I, I couldn't. So I decided to just market it and, and it talk to everybody on Twitter. I'm so sorry. The, the, the demand, we can't keep up with the demand, the supply, you know. I was just honest and just perpetuated this conversation where everybody was like, I want it. I, the, people were obsessed with it. They just wanted it. So I had to lean into that because we couldn't get it to them. And we ended up selling what was like 400,000 cases in that first year. That's a crazy number. It would have been 700,000 cases if we could keep up with the demand. I mean, it was, and it wasn't even full nationwide distribution. It was just, it was the fastest growing liquor brand in history at the time. It was insane. Yeah, it was basically, it was all gravy, but there was shit that did happen. And you ended up sold, selling the business what year to be? 2010. Uh, sold it for what, $100 million? I mean, million? we don't ever discuss the actual number. What does it say online? 100, 110, whatever. whatever. Let, let's just say that. Do you have any uh, regrets of when you sold it? No, no. I had no money. I had never taken a single dollar out of the thing. What if I got sued? Everybody came and cheater brands were copying left and right. Who doesn't have a low-calorie cocktail now? Low-calorie margarita. Like, everybody copied. What if they were way bigger, which they all were, and gobbled us and swallowed us? And, you know, Beam was saying, we're gonna, if we don't do this with you, we're going to make a, a skinny sousa. You know, I, 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 you can't, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Like, you, you can't get every nickel off the floor. And nobody ever, as my fiance's father says, nobody ever, once they said about somebody, how'd you get so rich? I always sold too early. Nobody's going, nobody's, you know, going broke by selling early. Yep. Um, but I had no money. So I was like, it was, it was getting a piece on the board. It was being a person who turned a brand in 18 months. It was street cred. Who knew Forbes was coming and, you know, but I had the best idea, which was to say to them, you can buy this cocktails, but you can't. Yep. I mean, that's the most extraordinary thing. You can buy the cocktail. You cannot have the rest of it. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you don't need it. You don't sell jeans and bathing suit. Like, you can't, no. So I own the brand, and it still makes millions and millions of dollars in those other categories a year. Oh, there are so few examples of brands that last a and year, much let alone they're a major. Decade. Remember Organic Harvest with all those juice plates? Like, yep. you know, Cold Stone Creamy. I don't know if they're still around, but like brands that have just died on the vine. I'm proud. What Bethany is saying here is so true. In 2022, there just isn't the staying power of the big brands of the 90s and 2000s anymore. And to be a legacy brand this day and age is incredibly rare. Think about Borders or Blockbuster or Cold Stone Creamery like Bethany mentioned. For each of these businesses, advanced on-demand technology like Uber Eats or Amazon made those businesses obsolete no matter the brand value. So Bethany deciding to sell her more successful branch of Skinny Girl makes a lot of sense in the long term. She sold when the cocktail product was hot and made herself money that she could then apply to the other aspects of her business. But related to Skinny Girl, Bethany wanted to clarify one thing. Oh wait, I want to say one thing. I want to talk about the name Skinny Girl. Yes. Because now that everybody's, uh, you know, subject to cancellation. People want to talk about that and what it means to women and all. Okay. It was a low calorie cocktail. It's like saying diet Coke. I have no problem any more than if someone says fat girl, cause it's like got frosting. No one thinks that you're fat. If you're eating it, you're thin. If you're eating fat girl, it's just, it's saying something. And I'm sure it's messaging that people don't love. And I get that, right? It's a lower calorie cocktail. It's a lower calorie salad dressing. It's a lower calorie popcorn. It's a low, with the food, I'm totally fine with it because it means at all shapes and sizes, 
You can eat more of it if you want. You can indulge. It's 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 a better for you uh, product. It it's on the fringe when we're talking about apparel, which any more clothing that I launch will be under the Bethany name. But in in launching this in launching the um, bathing suits, I really pushed back. You know had a back and forth dialogue with HSN to say it needs to be Bethany. It cannot be skinny girl because that's where the line is crossed. Like we cannot have the word skinny with bathing suits, but I have no problem with the word skinny girl, which is one word, not skinny girl. So it's now just its own word as much as Apple computer is a fruit. Yep. And I have, I like the name for the food. I just don't like it for the body. So that's where I draw the line. So everyone who has a problem with that, can fuck off, keep coming at me, bro. Because yep. I'm no one, I have an inclusive brand. I, we sell up to size 32. All my books are about allowing, indulging, never about dieting. So if you're gonna take a shot at this bee, you better not miss. I want, to, uh, I want to talk about in a second, how, if at all, your motivation has changed. When you had no money, you were like, it was pre-selling Skinny Girl. What motivated you? Was it money? Was it not losing? What, what was the thing that drove you? To the point of just being relentless. Just the next step. Just the next, just thinking I had something extraordinary. Keep trying. It's going to happen. Whatever it is, I have no idea. Having a job, having a job working for Martha Stewart, getting $250,000 a year. That was like $250 million to me. Like I was broke, like having a real job, being a real person and, you know, democratizing health the way she did style, being on television and cooking, like whatever it was at the moment, just like, just take a step, get on the board and like figure out the next thing. Like same way I am now. No big goal. Just like, I want to be something. I want to do something. I want to be somebody. I want to succeed at something, one thing. And then we'll worry about the next thing. Well, and also you didn't, you didn't, I mean, you didn't really have a safety net either, right? Like early in your career, it's like if you fucked up and you didn't do a good job, you know, what was your alternative? And you just don't fuck up anyway. It doesn't even matter. I have a big safety net now. There's just like no fucking (laughs) up. And if you do, you, you own it. And just like, you don't fuck up. So, okay, you you already alluded to this, but I just want to better understand it. You know, you made a shit ton of money. You never have to work again if you don't want to. What motivates you today, especially when you just have other things in your life that are priorities to you mentioned, like your fiance, your daughter, has your motivation changed at all? Drastically, my motivation has changed. I want to do the things that I love, that I'm passionate about, that I think are interesting, that I think are in line with who I am as a person, not doing things for alternative goals, meaning, you know, when I was on reality television, I was having disputes and and talking about things that I don't necessarily care about and, and in a lot of unnecessary drama that is created by a circumstance on television. So that's not in line with who I am and I don't have to do that anymore. At that point, based on what I wanted to do or wanted to not be broke, I had to do that. Okay, let's do rapid fire because I want to okay. let you get on with your day. Um, First rapid fire question is, what was the lowest point in Skinny Girl's history? A moment when a false claim came out about the product. You've made a shit ton of money. What still motivates you? The idea, the idea and the execution. Real Housewives of New York, good or bad for your mental health? Not great. That is perfect. (laughs) That, That is perfect. Bethany, thank you so much for the time. Awesome, thank you. The Bethany Frankel you see now is someone who has chipped away relentlessly at a vision that she saw for herself years ago as a kid watching racehorses fight their way to first place. Now, her ratchet success wasn't a direct line, but she used every opportunity to the fullest to build her network and communicate her vision to those who could help make it happen. 
Winning is a part of her DNA. And if there's one thing to pull away from this conversation, it's that we should all be unafraid to fail, to make that call or send that email, even if you think it's overreaching. You don't know what's on the other side of any given opportunity. Now, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters are impacting your life. So tell me, how does this podcast help you in your career or your personal life? And are there any particular guests or episodes that have been most helpful to you? Also, tell us the stuff you don't like about the show that you want to get better. Shoot me an email at alexatmorningbrew.com letting me know what you think, and I promise I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Valbanani, and Michaela Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer, and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Emily Milliron is our video producer, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.